Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled Thomas Cahill, Great Historian. The date, November 2022, and my name is Belisarius Avis. I learned last week that Thomas Cahill had passed away at the age of 82. When a movie star rock singer passes, there is usually much commentary around the passing. I even got on the bandwagon of writing a piece about Meatloaf's death in this podcast that is entitled Americans, Meatloaf, Maturation, and Mortality. And it's available for download on this platform. That is why 2022 was doubly interesting and sad for the passing of not one, but two prominent historians who both received write-ups akin to celebrities. I always think there are two fascinating things about Thomas Cahill, a great historian. The first was the style of his Hinges of History series. And the second was that Cahill toiled in relative obscurity until the publication in 1995 of How the Irish Saved Civilization, published when he was 55 years old. I get that the, the title is a little hyperbolic. Many of his titles was. One, uh, one way at the New York Times noted that if Cahill's history was as good as his uh, book titles, he would have been known as the best historian of all time. And in the case of How the Irish Saved Civilization, I did not even buy his entire premise. Because I would argue the Byzantines were still around in 500 CE, and they know a little something about civilization too. But that doesn't take away from the fact that How the Irish Saved Civilization was a very interesting take and the writing style was marvelously engaging. Let me get the critical stuff out of the way. One academic critic sniffed at his work calling it pop history. But was Cahill's research fundamentally flawed? Was his craft that of a poser? Or was he just really good at telling a non-fictional story? A classical composer can snub Bruce Springsteen, but it does not change the power majesty of Darkness on the Edge of Town or Thunder Road. And the ever-reliable New York Times said of Cahill, Cahill is no historian, but he doesn't pretend to be. You don't get any groundbreaking scholarship, and if more recent examples of such scholarship are typical, you don't miss it either. What you do get in his books is a guided trek around the standard texts, and we should be grateful for anyone willing to demonstrate that the study of history actually is a bit interesting. It's a little weird that the critique in the Times says that Cahill is no historian and then later says, and that's a direct quote, the study of history is interesting. So I'm not really sure what they mean by that, but even in this criticism, they end up doing um, praise No historian? If a historian's research, analyzation, interpretations, and writings about the past by studying historical documents and sources, then that is precisely what Cahill was doing. However, some of these thoughts probably tell more about the sources, in this case the Times, than they do about the subject. More accurate was this write-up in the Jewish Bulletin. Thomas Cahill looks at history with the rigor of a scholar but it explains it simply with the skill of a gifted teacher. He conveys with a fresh lens a legacy so much a part of us that we scarcely recognize it. 
Born in New York City to Irish-American parents and raised in Queens and the Bronx, Cahill was educated by Jesuits and studied ancient Greek and Latin. He continued his study of Greek and Latin literature, as well as medieval philosophy, scripture, and theology at Fordham University, where he completed a BA in classical literature and philosophy in 1964, and a pontifical degree in philosophy in 1965. He then completed a Master's of Fine Arts in Film and Dramatic Literature at Columbia University in 1968. I think that that last one in Film and Dramatic Literature is, is probably what encouraged him to be not just a historian, but a good storyteller as well as a scholar. I also love the offhand note here we have a trained classicist who studied medieval philosophy and new film work, and it gets worse. In anticipation of writing his work, The Gifts of the Jews, Cahill studied scripture at Union Theological Seminary in New York and then spent two years as a visiting scholar at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America, where he studied Hebrew and the Hebrew Bible. Oh, he could also read French and Italian. In 1999, he was awarded an honorary doctorate from Alfred University in New York. Now, sometimes God bestows too many gifts on single individuals, and Cahill was one of those recipients. Now, frequent listeners to this podcast would know I'm no Marxist, but a slight redistribution of such talent, like, I don't know, to me, would have been nice, but I digress. Of the work that brought him fame, Cahill wrote, of the work that brought him fame, Cahill wrote within, Wherever they went, the Irish brought with them their books, many unseen in Europe for centuries and tied to their waists as signs of triumph. Just as Irish heroes had once tied to their waists, their enemy heads. Where they went, they brought their love of learning and their skills in bookmaking. In the bays and valleys of their exile, they reestablished literacy and breathed new life into the exhausted literary culture of Europe. And that is how the Irish saved civilization. His work was full of interesting insights and nuggets, such as that Ireland is unique in religious history for being the only land into which Christianity was introduced without bloodshed. What Cahill did was hard. The easiest of history is the biography because it provides an excellent map to follow, where to look, and what to prepare. If I were to do, a, I don't know, an epic work on the French Revolution, I would almost have to possess a working knowledge of French and a deep understanding of late 18th and early 19th century French history and culture. And where do I start? Maybe with Louis XIV, who spent all of the money? maybe with the Enlightenment or Rousseau, with the storming of the Bastille. One of the reasons journalists turn historians so often do both biographies and American ones at that is because it is so much simpler to access the primary and secondary sources and to have a clear direction for the book. Of course, many of these folks do not do their research and writing. They source it out, but at least at a high level, they need to know something about their subject. Cahill did not farm out the work. No telltale width on his book covers. Just take his first Hinges of History book, How the Irish Saved Civilization. First, 
he needed detailed research on the Irish of St. Patrick's Day and their culture both before and after his arrival in 5th century Ireland, as well as of the missionaries and their work after Patrick's death. Then, because Cahill compares Patrick to Augustine of Hippo, he needed to know about late imperial Rome and Augustine himself. Finally, Cahill had to compare the two in both good, in Cahill's estimation mostly Patrick, and bad. Cahill was not really a fan of Augustine. Then Cahill did something even more extraordinary. A historian is much like a filmmaker who would have said a 10-hour day yields about 8 to 10 minutes of film, less if they are shooting an action scene. Think of all that film on the cutting room floor, as they say. A historian is similar in that we spend hours and hours researching to find the nuggets of information that will prove helpful. For example, I am working on a piece for late 19th century America on the election of 1894. The key figure at that time was Congressman Richard Silverdick Bland of Missouri. There is very little about him online, so I need to sift through volumes of works on late 19th century America to find nuggets about his life and furthermore about his belief in silver-based currency. And this is just one of the figures I am working with. Others, including Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison, I need to know. I also need to know about the so-called Gilded Age and the Panic of 1893. But my material is in English, and a lot of it is accessible in places like Missouri, Ohio, and Indiana. Cahill followed up his work on the Irish in the 5th century C by going back to the beginning of history itself with the Sumerians of the 27th century BCE. A slight difference of, oh, about 3,200 years. This was in service to his book, Gifts of the Jews, my favorite of his collection. So now Cahill was mining through old Sumerian texts and trying to learn about the fictional Gilgamesh and the real-life Hammurabi. Then for comparison, he moves to the Bible and teaches about Abraham, or Avram. Hence, as I talked earlier about his study at those Jewish seminaries and the mastering of the Hebrew Bible. In a later work, Cahill goes northeast for a brilliant book on the Greeks called Sailing the Wine-Dark Sea. Finally, for his book about Jesus called The Desire of the Everlasting Hills, Cahill returns to Palestine, but is now dealing with Aramaic and featuring figures such as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and most of all, Saul of Tarsus, or later, St. Paul. This book breaks down his thoughts of who these men were and his comments on Luke, the Gentile in his mind, especially reveal the nature of Christianity, or at least the nature, according to Luke, and Cahill. Cahill's journeys then lead him to monasteries for his books on medieval Europe called Mysteries of the Middle Ages and finally to Italy where he expounds on art for the Renaissance in his Heretics and Heroes. Incredible. It is not just the depth and breadth of Cahill's writing between these books but within them as well. And yet through it all he presents himself as following the best path for historians going out and finding the facts then assembling them to create a narrative and not the other way around. And Kale, like myself, delights in the anomalous. 
One example from Sailing the Wine Dark Sea comes from Homer's Iliad, showing us a scene with Trojan Prince Hector and his family. Hector's son does something amusing, and the Trojan hero and his wife laugh. It is one of the only examples showing family life in ancient times and the only example in the literature up until the 18th century. Another is the observation that crucifixion was such a horrible punishment that contemporaries who had seen one never depicted it in terms of Jesus' death. It was not until the 500 CE, after the fall of the Roman West and the end of this terrible infliction, that the medieval artists started to depict Jesus on the cross. Not until anyone who had actually seen one was dead was it depicted. Perhaps Cahill's learned those things from other historians, but for me, it is of no matter. I learned all this and much more from him. One of the tricks so-called popular historians do is to keep their work centered on a specific group of people or even a specific time. Remember all that research, all of those, those pieces, uh, we would call them on the cutting room floor? It can be stored for later use or in a later book. I love Joseph Ellis's founding brothers, but instead of venturing to other times or topics, he does biographies on prominent figures that appeared in that original work. And this is not a criticism. Ellis is a great historian and a strong writer, but instead this is a comparison demonstrating the monumental nature of the hinges of history. And now, here are some samples of his work. This one from Sailing the Wine Dark Sea, Why the Greeks Matter. Human beings never know more than a part as through a glass darkly. All knowledge comes to us in pieces, like fish who do not know they swim in the water. We are seldom aware of the atmosphere of the times through which we move, how strange and singular they are. But when we approach another age, its alienness stands out, almost as if it were that, its most obvious quality. And in the commentary on this, we hear from the historian himself directly, not as the historian within the book, but for him commenting on his works. For me, the historian's principal task should be to raise the dead to life. Only when we step back can we see that we have been reassembling something that can stand in the wind. The Greek world will continue an almost constant cultural revolution from the time of Homer to the day Rome brings Greece to its knees in the 2nd century BCE. The longest trajectory of fluid development in any society known to history. That last one is typical of Cahill in making these wonderful comparisons and providing us with insight we hitherto lacked. And one more passage from that book. Though the poems of Homer and his successors were recorded, there would be no Greek reading public till we reached the 5th century BCE. There was instead a hearing public that formed responsive audiences at festivals and contests. Human beings never know more than a part, as through a glass darkly, all knowledge comes to us in pieces. Here are some passages from The Desire of the Everlasting Hills, published in 1999. Cahill, partially trained by those Jesuits, understood the nature of his subject. Jesus was no ivory tower philosopher, but a down-to-earth man who understood that much of the good of human life is to be found in taste, touch, smell, and the small attentions of one human being for another. 
there is that fun scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Well, at least it, not as much fun for the millionaire guy who actually drank the first time. Uh, but this is the scene where it is shown that the cup of Christ is just a simple drinking vessel. Cahill understood that Jesus was not wealthy nor a trained priest, and he brings the historical Jesus to life in a way that, unfortunately for me, no Catholic priest ever has. As I noted, Cahill loved his comparisons. He started off doing one with Patrick and Augustine in How the Irish Saved Civilization, and here he compares Alexander the Great to Plato. Alexander was therefore the great, the greatest man who had ever lived. Plato was the measure of all subsequent philosophy. And Phidias, of all attempts to carve a man in marble, Alexander was the measure of the man himself. We may, we may think such a value system outmoded or remote. It was not so long ago, though, that Napoleon enchanted Europe in his quest to be the modern Alexander. Nor were such values unknown to the generals and commandants of the 20th century. God knows they continue to infect the brains of all those who take up weapons of destruction in what they believe to be a noble cause. Indeed, the whole course of history, the invincible warrior with raised sword has been the archetypal hero of the human race. It is another of those wonderful comparisons that Cahill notes that if Alexander is the Superman, what does a man of peace, a man like Jesus, look like in ancient times. Jesus, in a word, was an original in his time and still in ours. And what Cahill is really getting at here is, is again, Alexander was the archetypal human being, the one who everyone wanted to emulate. Certainly the Romans thought so, from Pompey the Great, and you have Sulla, Julius Caesar, and on and on. They all wanted to be the new Alexander. And yet, there are no two billion people calling them Macedonians today, but there are two billion people who call themselves Christians. Out of all of his wonderful books, my favorite is the one that, though written after the Irish book, chronologically, comes before all of the other books. Here is a quote from Gifts of the Jews, published in 1998. Since time is no longer cyclical, but one way, and irreversible, personal history is now possible, and an individual life can have value, and development and evolution, words of such importance to us, would have meant little in the timeless culture of Sumer, where everything that was, their city, their fields, their herds, their plows, had always been. Here Cahill leads us to the center of the values and the cultures we hold dear today, the worth of an individual, the concept of being more than was it intended, that life has worth beyond the cycle or the wheel. Even capitalism is inherent in these gifts from the Jews. One of the central tenets of gifts of the Jews is the rejection of the circular, cyclical world that produced Abraham, yet which he, in his belief in God, rejected for a linear, always progressing worldview. All ancient civilizations from those along the yellow Indus, Euphrates, or Nile rivers, saw their world and their lives as a wheel, as cyclical, always turning, birth, life, death, and repeat for every new generation. But the Old Testament, as Professor Cahill notes, 
is a progression from tribe to clan to nation, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, all within the covenant with God. A small, hardy, obstinate, and monotheistic chosen people without the concept of progress, our world loses its meaning. After discussing Gilgamesh and their rather humanly frail pantheon of gods, Cahill describes the nature of the Jewish God. This is God's self-description, the one he would have us remember. He is the God of mercy and forgiveness, the God who never deserts his people, faithful to the end, patient with all our failings, however dismaying. One of the things that Cahill talks a lot about is is the nature and differentiation of this type of God compared to all of the other polytheistic gods around that part of the world, whether it be the Egyptian Amun, the Greek Zeus, and later the Roman Jupiter. These are all gods who are formed in the concept of what a man would be if basically he were a superman. But the Jewish God is not like this, and nor are the Jewish people. Cahill talks of the scripture, It is no accident, therefore, that the great revelations of God's own name and his commandments occur in a mountainous desert, as far from civilization and its contents as possible, in a place as unlike the lush predictabilities and comforts of the Nile and the Euphrates as this earth of ours can offer. If God, the real God, the one God, was to speak to human beings, and if there was any possibility of their hearing him, it could happen only in a place stripped of all cultural reference points, where even nature, which was so imbued with the contrary God-inhabited forces, seemed absent. Only amid inhuman rock and dust could this fallible collection of human beings imagine becoming human in a new way. Only under sun without pity, on a mountain devoid of life, could the living God break through the cultural filters that normally protect us from him. Yahweh, Yahweh, he thunders at Moshe, the man alone on the mountain, God showing mercy, showing favor, long-suffering in anger, abundant in loyalty and faithfulness, keeping loyalty to the thousandth, keeping loyalty to the thousandth generation, bearing iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Really masterful stuff. This is why Gifts of the Jews is probably my favorite. Now, in some of his last two books, The Mysteries of the Middle Ages and Heretics and Heroes about the Renaissance, seem to be narrower in scope than some of his earlier works. It is because, like the Jews, once on the journey, they cannot stop until they get to the Holy Land, or in Cahill's case, the present day. I felt this book on the Middle Ages maybe needed the editing that tends to come with, well, writing a little bit less. But this is also like condemning Spielberg's Jaws, saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List, because, well, Spielberg also made 1941. Not one, not two, but a whole collection of wonderful books. Cahill brought us to different places and different times and introduced far away, sometimes carved in granite, Folks like Augustine, Pericles, and Jesus, and made them flesh and blood and more interesting for the effort. In his book on Jesus, Cahill writes, What especially makes the Gospels, from a literary point of view, works like no others, is that they are about a good human being. 
As every writer knows, such a creature is impossible to capture on the page, and there are exceedingly few figures in all literature who are both good and memorable. I would say it is rare to find a historian who thoroughly knows their subject, but can also convey that subject in a way as to appeal to a large audience to make it memorable, as the writer states. And it is rare still to do it over a 4,000-year arc. I am quite saddened by his passing, but also very grateful for his works. This is Bell Avis. I really hope you've enjoyed this latest conservative historian podcast and ask you to check out all of our podcasts. We are available on all the major sites and we have over 130 of them. And I think if you enjoyed this one, you enjoyed a lot of the other ones. Thank you.